The following podcast is from Tabernacle Baptist Church in Cartersville, Georgia. Thanks for listening. If you have a copy of God's Word with you, and I hope you do, find your place in 1 John. Uh, this morning, we're going to look at 1 John chapter 2, uh, starting in verse number 28, and we're going to go through 1 John chapter 3 and verse number 1. In the passage before us this morning, uh, the Apostle John reminds believers, his readers, of how to live the Christian life. It's important for us to always have God's word in front of us and to always remember biblically how to live the Christian life. There indeed, there's indeed much confusion out there in the world concerning what it means to be a Christian. I have friends who are not Christians, old friends who are not Christians, and uh, sometimes they'll tease me and they'll say, I was uh, talking to somebody at work or some of my friends, and I told them that I have a friend who's a Southern Baptist pastor. And they'll say, I always get a, quite a response when I tell them one of my good friends is a Southern Baptist pastor. Why? There's a lot of misconceptions concerning what it means to be a Christian, a Bible-centered Christian. That's out there in the world, but it's also present amongst the church. There's a lot of confusion concerning what it really means to live the Christian life. Why is there such confusion over this issue? Why does it seem that even amongst the church there are scores and scores and scores in every congregation who seem to be unaware of how to really live the Christ life? I like to think of it like this. Satan's primary aim many times is to sow confusion when it comes to the truth. We see that even in the first century when you look at the lives of the Pharisees. They had a grain of truth in a way. They held to the teachings of Moses. They called Abraham their father, but they had a lot of stuff mixed in with the truth that kept them from being true followers of Yahweh. And there's a similar condition, we believe, in the 21st century. There was a similar condition in the first century. John had to write this letter because there was a church that had been infiltrated with people who wore the label Christian, but who didn't really live the plain and simple Christian lives. They weren't grounded in the gospel. Their lives were not built upon the Bible. So John here writes by inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and he encourages his readers to live the real Christian life, and to do so, he makes some important spiritual distinctions. He wants to qualify things and describe things and delineate things. In these verses, he makes some important spiritual distinctions in order to teach the church how to really, really, really live the Christian life. John's words are a reminder for us that we need to know how to live the Christian life. And sometimes it requires important spiritual distinction for us to live the Christian life. I was reading recently some history and I read about how in the 1950s, uh, the federal government, based on several reports, actually recommended cigarette smoking to the general public. 
They recommended cigarette smoking because of supposed benefits from smoking cigarettes. One of the the most reported benefits was this. Cigarette smoking can help prevent Parkinson's disease. And so this was widely reported. It was recommended that the nicotine and cigarette smoking can help you pursue a healthy life and avoid certain diseases. Now, at that time, perhaps that sounded good at face value, but an important distinction needed to be made, right? Cigarette smoking and the nicotine may help you avoid Parkinson's disease, but at the same time, it may lead to another fatal disease. Important distinction. Now, in our spiritual life, we often need to make important distinctions as well. We can buy into a form of Christianity if we're not careful that can keep us from the true life of Christ. We can have rules and rituals and regulations, requirements and religion that miss the Jesus life. And in doing so, by not making important distinctions, we can attend church yet stay in bondage to certain sins. If we don't make important distinctions, we can wear the label Christian and be involved in Christian service, yet have lives that are dominated by relational issues. We can be a part of a small group, yet have warped views of God if we don't make certain biblical important distinctions. If we don't discover God's truth and learn what it really means to live the Christ life, our entire system of Christianity can be more of a burden than a blessing. We're like John's readers. We need to hear this spirit-inspired truth. We need to make important spiritual distinctions this morning so that we can have the abundant life of Christ. What are these distinctions we need to make? How can we live the Christian life? Well, I believe in our text, John gives us three important distinctions. If you're following along with the listening outline we've made available online, note these three important distinctions. First of all, see that John makes this distinction. He makes a distinction between being and doing. He highlights the importance of being Overdoing. Being versus doing. Being is more important than doing. Look how he says this in verse number 28. He says, So now, little children, and that's a term of endearment that the apostle often applied to believers. So we know here he is speaking to the real believers in the church. So now, little children, remain. Everybody, in your household, say that word remain. Remain, you guys can say it in here too, remain in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not be ashamed before him at his coming. Now, that word remain is an important word in the Christian vernacular. It's often used of one's relationship to the Lord. John here uses a present imperative. Imperative means it's a command. In other words, if you want to live the Christian life, the Holy Spirit of God commands you to remain in Jesus. But it's also a present tense verb. That implies continual, ongoing, lifestyle type of action. 
Here, our text could be translated, keep on abiding in him. Keep on remaining in him. Now, John uses this word to describe the fundamental essence of the Christian life. Contrary to the mindset of many of his readers, the Christian life did not involve this spooky mysticism that was focused on angels in an unhealthy way. That's what was going on in the first century world. Contrary to the opinion of many of John's readers, the Christian life had no place for gross immoral sin that the false teachers made permissible. John wanted to remind his readers that the Christian experience at its core involved a close soul-to-soul connection with God the Father through Jesus Christ. And he uses this word, remain, remain, to describe the Christian experience. Now, we may not be like John's readers. We may not have the folly and the false teaching that plagued their church. But indeed, don't we sometimes have misguided approaches to Christianity? Some of us perhaps have bought into a performance-oriented form of religion, a task list form of religion that is empty of a real meaningful relationship with God. Perhaps some of us has bought into a mystical form of Christianity that's so focused on earthly experiences, yet it is devoid of a real heart-to-heart connection with the Lord. We need to understand in our 21st century world that nothing has changed. The Word of God still stands, and being is at the essence of the Christian experience. And I would propose being is more important than doing. I remember using those same words on one occasion at my previous church and a good friend, an older man in the church said, Pastor, we need people who do stuff as here at First Baptist. I don't see how you can have one without the other. Shouldn't it be an either or proposition? It should be a both and proposition. And I would say amen to that. We need being and we need doing, but don't miss my point. Don't miss the distinction. Being is more important than doing. Indeed, true Christians, those really living the Christian life, will certainly do things for God. They'll do a whole lot of things for God. Jesus himself, John eight forty seven and 51, stressed the importance of outward obedience. You can't sit around and say, well, I'm just being in a right relationship with God and never do anything for God. Christians should be things, be in a right relationship with the Lord and do things with the Lord. But get the distinction. All of our doing for the Lord, all of our obedience for the Lord flows from a right heart. It emanates from a life that is being in a right relationship with the Lord. You can't be, you can't do all that God wants you to do in life unless you be, first of all, what he wants you to be. Now, this may seem strange to talk in this way, but know this, Jesus spoke of the Christian life in this manner, did he not? 
John 15, 5. Jesus described our entire Christian experience by saying, I am the vine, you are the branches. The one who remains in me, same word John uses here, the one who remains in me and I in him produces much fruit. You can do nothing without me. So do you see Jesus teaching? Indeed, we should produce fruit. We should obey. We should get victory over sin. We shouldn't be marked by the same relational maladies that mark the world. We should serve in the church. We should give. We should go on mission. We should do all of those things. That fruit should be present in our life, but that fruit will only truly appear when we abide or remain in a right relationship with Jesus. We want to truly live the Christ life. We've got to learn the secret of the vine. We can't place doing before being or we'll be like the Pharisees. Our priority in life must first be on an abiding relationship with the Lord. Do you have such a relationship? Are you one who's plagued by this miserable Christian experience and where you try to do things for God but you seem to fail, you seem to burn out, you seem to fade and fizzle. Could it be you've never tapped into the secret of the vine? You're trying to do, but you're not abiding. You're not remaining. No wonder there's burnout. No wonder there's bitterness. No wonder you're jaded. Get this, focus first on a relationship with the Lord. Center your life priorities on him. Make room in your daily schedule to spend time with him. As he would remove weeds from your garden, remove anything from your life that chokes out the life of God, that competes with your relationship with the Lord. Learn to stay in an attitude of prayer as you go about your daily routine. By staying in a dy dy dynamic relationship with Jesus, you will naturally do the things he wants you to do. Get it? Being is more important than doing. What an important spiritual distinction. I want you to see, number two, this other important spiritual distinction. In some ways, it may seem to contradict what I just said, but it doesn't. I want you to see, number two, that practice is more important than our profession. Our practice is more important than our profession. In the Christian life, practice has more weight than what we profess. What we actually do, our obedience, is more important than what we just say. So, so get this, John has just highlighted the, the priority of being in a right relationship with God and being is more important than doing. But then he turns right around and emphasizes the importance of doing, of obeying, of Christian practice. Look at what he says in verse 29. He says, if you know that he is righteous, you know this as well, everyone who does what is right has been born of him. Now, John first highlights this idea that his readers should have known that Jesus was righteous. He uses a personal pronoun here, he, and the he refers to Jesus. And he says, if you know that he is righteous, it could be translated, since you know. He, he's used this word, know, 
on several occasions in his letter in the perfect tense to refer back to things the church had been taught in their early days as a Christian. You can see an example of it back in chapter 1, verse 1, chapter 2, verse 7, 18, and 24. John here is, you could really translate it like this, since you have known that he is righteous. John's reminding his readers, when you first heard the gospel message, you heard this great truth, Jesus is sinless. He never did anything wrong. He was holy, holy, holy. He was perfectly righteous. He came as a spotless lamb to live the perfect life no man, woman, boy, or girl could ever live. John's readers should have known that Jesus was righteous. Now, this was an important reminder for his teacher, for his, for his readers, because the Gnostic heretics taught that Jesus had sin, that everything had sin in it. And John here says, on the contrary, Jesus was righteous. This is a hallmark of Christian teaching. Jesus was a spotless, sinless lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. If you question his righteousness, the whole system of Christian theology falls apart. So John reminds his readers, Jesus is righteous. And then he says this, you know this as well, everyone who does what is right is born of him. Reminds them that Jesus is righteous and then reminds them that those who belong to Jesus should practice righteousness. Now, this was, again, important truth for John's readers because the, the false teachers who had invaded the church gave license for sin. They said it was okay to engage in gross, immoral acts of fornication, licentiousness, and sin. John here reminds his readers that those who are really born again, those who have been saved, those who are true, genuine article Christians should live or aim to live lives of righteousness. What is righteousness? That may sound like a stuffy church word. I mean, we don't walk around saying, I'm practicing righteousness. I'm righteous. What does the word mean? You could look at that word righteousness and just take that word right out of it and it gives you a good idea of what righteousness is. Righteousness refers to thoughts, attitudes, actions that are right before God. You could call righteousness the right behavior God requires. When one lives a righteous life, he is fulfilling the Lord's righteous demands according to the way he has created this world in a moral sense. John here claims that such righteousness is evidence that one has been born of God. It gives a reference to the new birth. John 3, 3, Jesus said, you must be born again. Jesus used this idea of being born again as a description for the Christian life. We've all been born physically. We've all had a physical birthday to be saved, to escape hell, to live forever in the new heaven and the new earth. You need a spiritual birthday. That spiritual birthday takes place when you call out to God, when you believe that you are an imperfect person who has fallen short of God's standard, and when you believe that Jesus was 
100% God, 100% man who lived the life you could never live and paid the penalty for your sins at Calvary. The Bible teaches when you call out to God, believing in Jesus, that the Lord sends his Holy Spirit to live within your physical shell. You become a new creature in Christ. You've had a physical birthday, but the, the moment of faith, you have a spiritual birthday and your soul will live forever in a new body one day because you've been born again. John says, if you have been born again, if you truly, truly are a Christian, you should practice a life of righteousness. I remember several years ago, I was, it was a Sunday morning and I was going to, ready to preach and I'd been in my Sunday school class and I stepped out into the hallway and one of our ushers had been in the worship center uh, prior to church starting and he met me in the hallway. My parents had uh, come to visit the church that morning and this usher said, there's a woman in the worship center and if she's not your mom, I would be highly surprised. I'd bet a million dollars right now that that woman in there is your mom. She looks just like you. You look just like her. He saw a family resemblance. He was correct. We all know what it's like with family resemblances, right? Uh, we were talking this past weekend uh, amongst our family and I believe my sister was involved in the conversation and we were talking about uh, the, the children and the cousins and talking about one of them who likes to eat a lot and one said that one is a Latham indeed family resemblance you know how that goes right in your family there are possibly traits or habits that you could say that is a insert the name of your family trait right now John here is using similar logic amongst a church that had been infiltrated with people that said you could live however you want to go engage in whatever type of sin that makes you feel good John says on the contrary if you have been born of God if you're a child of the king if you belong to the Lord you should live a life of righteousness Practice is more important than profession. What do I mean by profession? Hey, I'm talking about what we profess. There were a lot of people in Asia Minor in the first century who said, we're Christians, we know him. Go back and read the letter. John says, no, remember, practice is more important than a mere profession. You can say you're a Christian, but the Bible teaches one day at the great white throne judgment, the Lord will look at your works to see whether or not you are truly a Christian. Get this, good works do not earn our salvation, but they are evidence of our salvation. Jesus, shortly before he was crucified, cursed a fig tree to make an important point to the Jews in his day. You can say you know the Lord, but if you don't have fruit, your knowledge is suspect. That's why Jesus said in Matthew 7, 21, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father in heaven. Did Jesus mean that you've got to do the will of God in order to earn salvation? No, he meant to say, if you have really been born again, it will produce a change on the inside that will show up on the outside, and practice is more important than profession. This was the teaching of James in James 2.26. He said, just as the body 
without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. Though good works are not a requirement for salvation, they are certainly a result of salvation. John's readers needed to be reminded of such truth. The immoral heretics in the church weren't real Christians and they were leading folks astray. We believe John's words here stand as an admonition for all generations. The church in this 21st century world in which talk is so cheap and everybody's got a platform for their opinion in blogs and in news debates and social media, we've got to be on guard against vain professions. Those who confess Christ should be more focused on their lifestyle than the loudness of their talk. We should regularly examine ourselves and have honest, soul-searching sessions in which we seek to discern whether or not our character matches our confession. We should regularly analyze our lives to make sure we don't have this type of profession, this talk about Jesus that is empty of practice, a real walk with Jesus. In a world in which talk is so cheap, We've got to be diligent to place more action, more weight on action than on words. This is the world we live in, right? Anybody can go on social media and say anything. Anyone can profess to be anything. By the way, have you ever noticed this? Sometimes the ones who talk the loudest end up being the ones with some of the biggest problems. I've seen it before. Oh, I've got the greatest marriage ever. Two months later, what happened to that great marriage? And sometimes I believe there's this, um, you know, this psychology going on where we use social media to kind of puff ourselves up or to make ourselves feel better than of what's lacking in our lives. We've got to humble our hearts and make sure we're actually living the life. We see this in social media. I think of the way folks can sometimes commit to a new diet, a new exercise regimen, keto, vegan, paleo, whatever, on social media. Hey, you know you can click away and make a post, but here's what matters. The rubber meets the road. Do you really live it? The same thing is true in our Christian life. By the way, if you've posted about paleo in the last 48 hours, I'm not on Facebook, so I don't know. Don't take it personally, all right? My point here is this. We've got to be careful that we have got practice as a priority over profession. Here, the word of God, in a Christian world of so much easy believism, don't miss Jesus' words. This is serious stuff. Number three, another important distinction we have this morning is this idea of a relationship over a checklist. Now, I love checklists. I've got an app on my phone called Things, where I go in and I make a list of all the things I got to do. I've got a list of things I want to do in this decade of my life. I've got a list of things I need to do at the house. I got a list of things for my prayer life. I got a list of things or ideas for sermon study. I got a list of things I need to do here at the church, big projects and ideas I'm having, notes I'm making. I've got lists for my daily activities, my weekly priorities. Each day when I get into the office, I make a list of all the things I want to do. 
I like to make lists. Maybe you're like me. The problem is our Christian life really can't work that way. I can't wake up in the morning and say, today I'm going to read five chapters of the Bible, pray for 20 minutes, witness to one person, and do one kind act of charity. I can't do that and by that alone expect to, have, to live the Christian life. I could do all that and still miss the heart of Jesus. I've got to see that a relationship with Christ is more important than a checklist. Look at how John says this at the first part of verse 1. He says, see what great love the Father has given us that we should be called God's children and we are. John here highlights this idea of relationship. Relationship. He uses an exclamation at the beginning of the verse of saying, what great. I love this, uh, this phrase in the original language. The original language of the Bible, the Koine Greek, this is a powerful exclamation that expresses admiration. It could be translated how great or how wonderful. In Roman times, the Romans used the same phrase and it literally meant of what country or of what race. It implied astonishment at some new thing someone had never seen before. Perhaps some merchants arrived back into the capital city of the empire and they unloaded uh, their wares and began to show things that show people things they'd purchased from the east and maybe as they unwrapped them people would use this very word to say of what country is that of what race did that come from one has said it basically meant where did you get that the word could be thought to be similar to our modern day expression what in the world is that John uses this language here to express the otherworldly benevolence, charity, and love the Lord has placed upon each one of us through the person of Jesus Christ. He says, see what great love. John can't even put it in words. He wrestles to explain it. He wants the people in the church to know that the love of the Lord is profound and deep and life-altering. Then he reminds them, he reminds us that we've been called God's children. John uses the ideal father-child relationship as a metaphor for the love of the Lord towards his children. Now, it's hard for us in the 21st century Western world to, to get the meaning of John's words as it was intended for the original audience because according to our standards, fathers ought to love their children. It's expected, right? I think about my father not long ago. I remember him telling me, you know, I'm at the age now. Anybody can say anything they want to say about me. It doesn't really hurt my feelings. But you say something about one of my children, right? I might have a hard time with it. Fathers should naturally have a great care and concern for their children. But in the ancient world, things were different. Fathers viewed their children as commodities, 
There was actually Roman law that you could sell children into slavery at a certain age. Fathers had cruel and many times harsh and unrelenting expectations of their children. The Lord, the Lord here through the Apostle John reminds first century readers that the Lord has a healthy father type of love towards his children, those who have been saved. Now, we may have a similar type of problem. You may have a similar type of problem to John's first century readers. See, there was a lot of cultural baggage with this word father. And maybe for you, there's some baggage with the word father as well. Maybe your father checked out when you were young. Maybe your father hurt you or abused you. Maybe your father was present but wasn't really present. Maybe your father did a lot of important things and provided for the family, but he didn't give you some of the love, affection, and affirmation you needed. Maybe your father had unrealistic expectations and you feel like you're living in his shadow in a way. Maybe you've been greatly hurt by your father. Understand here that John is speaking, and his readers need to understand this, of the ideal father type of relationship. See, the Lord uses this title. He holds up what fathers should be as an example for what the Lord is towards us. The Jews in Jesus' day used this title as a moniker for the descendants of Abraham and Hosea and Hosea 11 1 used it as a title for the Lord and here Jesus takes this great word children to speak of our father-child relationship with the Lord he Christianizes it and applies it to the church he wants real people living real life who are part of the church to understand the immenseness of God's love just as a healthy, ideal father would go to the ends of the earth to meet the needs of his children, the Lord has lavished endless, infinite, unconditional love on those who have been washed in the blood of the Lamb. The Bible uses this word, children. John 1.12, John uses it. To say to all who did receive Jesus, he get, gave them the right to be the children of God. And I think of Jesus' words in Matthew chapter 7 and verses 7 through 11. And speaking to disciples, he wanted them to be aware of the father-child relationship that exists between believers and the Lord. He spoke to his disciples in verse 7 and said, Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives and the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, the door will be open to you. So he's speaking about prayer, relationship with the Lord. And then he reminds his readers, Who among you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a snake? If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good things to those who ask him? 
Jesus reminds us of this great truth. He loves us. We're loved by the Father. The Bible shouts loud and clear. The Lord has fatherly affection towards us, and we belong to him. And to experience his life, to live the real Christian life, we've got to make this important distinction. We are loved by God. We are not in a posture of trying to earn his love. His love has been lavished upon us already. To experience the peace and power and the provision that belongs to Christ followers, we've got to learn how to develop this abiding trust in the Father's love. You see, we're sometimes like Jesus' first disciples. We're sometimes like the readers in first century Asia Minor. We're sometimes, aren't we, tempted to doubt his care for us. Sometimes we can allow past experiences to cloud our thinking and we forget about the Lord's love. Sometimes we can allow another person's estimation of us. A spouse, an ex, a neighbor, a hurtful family member. We can allow another person's estimation of us to skew our thinking. Maybe sometimes we can allow negative views of God that were ingrained into our minds from a young age to keep us from this reality. God is love and God loves us through Jesus. So no matter what you've experienced, no matter what you've been taught, no matter your hurt, No matter your failure, know this right now. The Heavenly Father loves you with a holy, paternal-like love. No matter what the tragedy in your past, no matter what the trial you're facing, know this, God loves you and he is with you and he is for you. There is nothing you can do to make him disown you as a child. Trust in his love Believe he has you in his arms and make this important distinction. There's times in lives to make important distinctions. And John made some here for his readers. I can remember a time where I really messed up when it came to an important distinction. Laura was um, with child and I can't remember which child we were expecting, but we're expecting one of them. And it got late at night and she said I'm having a craving Laura didn't have many cravings I remember she had a lot of cravings for sweet tea but she would not really have any cravings other than that but this particular night she had a craving for cheese sticks I want some cheese sticks honey go to the store and get me some cheese sticks yes ma'am I left the house went and got cheese sticks Came back to the house, went right into the kitchen, opened the box. There were those little fried cheese sticks like you would get at TGF Fridays or some restaurant as an appetizer. It came with a little packet of marinara sauce. I got those bad boys on a sheet pan in the oven, got them where they were crispy brown perfection. Bite into that crispy shell, and then the cheese just melts onto your tongue. You all ready for lunch? So I got all that ready and then got some, uh, the marinara sauce, put it all on a plate for her, got a napkin, put the, the marinara sauce, a little ramekin like I did, used to do back in my restaurant days. And I went in there and placed it before her and she said, what is this? I wanted cheese sticks, like real cheese, like the, the ones you peel, like you go into dairy section and cheese. Information that would have been helpful 30 minutes ago. 
got it wrong, didn't make an important distinction. Hey, get this, you can get it wrong in your spiritual life. You can get more focused on doing for God than being in a right relationship with God. If you're not careful, you can get focused on profession. Oh, what I say is most important instead of practice what I do. You can get focused on checklist instead of the love of the Lord and a relationship with him. For more information, visit us online at tabernaclebaptist.org. Thanks for listening.